It's so cool, isn't it? <laughs> Remote light. Okay. Well, here we are with the perennial question for long-time practitioners, the so-called practice in daily life question. It's actually interesting to me that quite a few people, well, several anyway, starting at the beginning of this retreat, came and uh, the first thing they were saying was about, well, my daily life practice. Either I'm, I'm not sitting every day or I'm losing my juice for it. Already it's implying that daily life, daily life practice is about sitting every day. That's the focus, which is already where we start to go astray. Um, but really worrying about it, feeling the losing the juice, you know, how to keep it fresh, how not to have it get stale, as if there's some magic answer. So I want to talk a little tonight, not about tricks to keep our sitting, you know, interesting. Forget about that. But just how we can approach our commitment to awakening. Uh, Just maybe a couple of things that might help us to care enough to keep paying attention in our daily life. Because I think that's what it really comes down to. We have to care enough. No little trick's going to do it for us. Um, So you probably, if this is your first retreat, maybe not. But those of you who've been on retreats before, doing mindfulness practice in this form for some time, it's no big secret that we can easily um, begin to think of practice in terms of our experiences on retreat, right? Either when we think of practice, we think of the sittings on a retreat or the particular states of mind that we might have experienced, some kind of concentration or peace or ease or silence or not so many thoughts or um, some deep understanding you had, whatever. And without even quite realizing it, that kind of uh, search to either hold on to, repeat experience, We're using experience as a reference point to evaluate whether our so-called practice in daily life is going somewhere, which is already right, where has it got to go, Um, that we so easily transfer this to the way we meet our daily life, to the way we, quote, practice. I'm even not so crazy about that word as far as daily life is concerned, so that we end up relating to our spiritual life, our spiritual path in in our daily life easily as simply transferring our gaining mode from one thing to another. You know, we go from wanting to earn a lot of money or having a nice house or the best relationship to having a better practice or being more compassionate or something. A lot of what Howie was talking about, the time-bound thing. But really, you know, I think I mentioned this before, The word sati in Pali, which we translate usually as mindfulness, is much closer in meaning to remembering, to remember. Now, it doesn't mean to remember the great state that you had on retreat and try to repeat it. That's not the kind of remember that it means. Really what it means to remember is our ineffable, pure nature, that which Not to remember it conceptually, because you can't remember something you don't know, can you? So mindfulness isn't about, remember doesn't mean create. It means remember that which we already know, that which we have experienced, that which we actually are. And what the formal meditation practice of sitting and walking and formal mindfulness on retreat or in daily life, but what we do in retreat the thing that actually it most deeply serves is to um, deepen in us our trust, our faith, our recognition of what that ineffable nature, that remembering, what it is that we're remembering, that we can learn to trust that. It's not a state, really. It's not even an experience. It's just that which we are. So in those moments which many people have reported. They don't have to be anything special, and sometimes they feel special. But those times take a pretty mundane one of 
suddenly getting it, so to speak, that the knee pain is killing. It's like it's been, you know, for the last seven days. And suddenly there's a pristine presence. There's no more sense of aversion, no more sense of me and that, something to fix, something to manipulate, something to even do anything about. And whether it's whether the person describes it as spaciousness or peace or coming home or ease or whatever, you know, there's all different words the way we describe it. But realizing that that is present and accessible even in the middle of you know, the ache, the pain, the, the uh, striving mind, the whatever it is. Or in just a little normal moment of you're walking out and you see a bird fly by. Or nothing special, drinking your tea. But the, what the practice does is just kind of strip away for a moment. It might only be for a moment. Strip away all the gaining, all the comparing, all the aversion, all the clinging, and it's just home, coming home. That's the whole point. And because it's nothing, it's not a state of mind that you can create and hold on to. Sometimes we don't like that. But really, that's what is what opens us to freedom. It's nothing we can create and hold on to, and therefore, it doesn't matter what situation we happen to be in, It can't get in the way. So to me, our life practice is about remembering this ineffable essence that we are much more truly than our aches and pains, like Ajahn Jimnian was talking about. He was so clear he wasn't his chicken pox. That's great. That's the perfect example. You know, there's this emptiness and compassion, and I'm not the chicken pox, the heart isn't itching. That's like such a classic, perfect example of what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter what's happening. So, if we want to talk about daily life practice, it's about, I think, all my opinions, is about learning, having the commitment to relate to our experience moment by moment to relate to it as this is the moment in which I can really open to come home again. Only this moment, exactly this moment, nowhere else. And that is not easy, is it? When it happens, it's so obvious. You think, well, sure, you know, and it's so easy to leave a retreat and think, well, that was so clear. You know, either sitting so easy, I'm not going to sit four times a day, that's no problem, or it's just, there's ease. What was the problem? I just sit, and whatever comes up, that's the meditation. There's no sense of struggle, there's no sense of strife. I got it, you know. And we walk out and we go into Walmart, and that's the end of it, (laughs) right there. Well, where did it go? I thought it was so obvious. So the trick is, Lily, we don't have to leave life behind to walk on the path of awakening. You know, we don't, have to, we don't have to retreat for the rest of our life to a cave. Although that's a viable option for some people. But it's not like that's the only option. We don't have to leave life behind. But on the other hand, we also don't have to leave our, our commitment to awakening behind in order to live an active, normal life. I've said, I think I said before, that in my opinion, retreat is just a microcosm of our life, right? It's the same mind, the same reactions. You recognize that by now, and it's it's fascinating. Just the way we relate to a sense of trying to control the breathing just reverberates into seeing how we relate to everything in our life. It's fascinating. And in the same way, if we look at our life, as complex as any activity might be, or as many things as we're doing in a day, it's still only moments. It's a, just a day is made up of moment and moment and moment. Moments don't go away and suddenly there's a solid hour, you know. It's like how he was talking about last night. There's no past and future. There's only this moment. 
that's true when you walk out of here, just the same as it's true here. You know, the laws of nature didn't change when you came through that gate and, and into the silent retreat. So the trick isn't to figure out how to get really good practice from now on. It's much more, how can I awaken in this moment, this moment? How can I awaken with compassion? How can I awaken with clarity into this moment? How can I meet this moment with kindness? And if we blow it in this moment, that's okay, because now there's this moment. And it's endless as long as we're alive. There's nothing but moments that we can really practice to awaken with clarity, with compassion. It's almost, I think it's almost a mantra sometimes in the, at least in the Vipassana scene, well, my life is my practice. And ultimately, I think that can be true. But I actually think it's personally, I'm speaking personally, it's extremely demanding, extremely difficult. As much energy and motivation and commitment as you put out to come and be on this retreat, to be with whatever experience is coming up, all the stuff you've gone through, I know that uh, an intensive retreat can at times be one of the most difficult and challenging experiences in our life. What makes us think, as I did for years, that that's all the time I had to put in? And then if I then go out, that's just going to carry me, you know, on a cloud of bodhisattvahood and love and compassion. And I don't have to keep, keep up that same quality of willingness to awaken in the moment. I mean, really, it's a little embarrassing, but it, I would say it took me close to 20 years to really understand, I don't probably still don't really understand, but to begin to think that maybe I could understand someday <laughs> how much depth of motivation and commitment is required. Because as I was talking some nights ago, what we're really dealing with here and in our daily life is the deeply ingrained habits of our mind, right? And there's that famous quotation of the Buddha, you know, what the mind thinks upon frequently, towards that it will naturally incline. Now, this is not to inspire fear, but it's to inspire a healthy respect. What does my mind think about frequently? And why am I surprised if in a moment of inattention, that's the way the mind moves, you know. And I think seven days of a retreat or seven years of a retreat is going to, it'll counteract it, it'll have an effect, but completely end it? No. It's moment to moment to moment. And I'm not saying this to be discouraging, I'm saying it to be realistic. Because I actually feel that one of the... Um, expectations, one of the things that really brings a discouragement to people's uh, keeping a committed practice going in their daily life is an unreal expectation. More should have happened, you know. Here I really saw through this stuff and the habits of greed or the habits of self-judgment or the habits of aversion or fear still keep coming up. So what's the point? Forget about it, you know. We're, We're an impatient culture. We're an instant culture. And I know if you, you got it from listening to Ajahn Jimnian when he's talking about all the last six years, he's really just in emptiness. I thought, wow. This guy, how old is he? Close to 60 or more? He's been practicing really intensively, more than probably most of us could imagine, since he was seven years old or maybe five, you know. And... Uh, It's not to be discouraging, it's to be realistic. (laughs) We're talking about a lifetime here, not a couple of years. (laughs) Habits habits are just really hard to break. Recently someone told me that uh, she'd been quit smoking 12 years ago and just recently picked it up again. It's just right back, you know, just no problem. It's like you never stopped. Well, craving in the mind, aversion and fear in the mind, Spacing out when we don't like what's going on, these are really deep habits that for before we pay attention, we're unaware of them. So I just want to talk about a couple of things that I think are helpful 
because we need to have the interest and the energy to keep paying attention. If we're paying attention in a moment, it's really often quite easy not to get caught up in those habits, you know? It's, it's not always that hard. Sometimes it is. But it's not always that hard to awaken into what's happening in the moment with some clarity, to meet it with some kindness. Remembering's the tricky part. And what helps us remember, what helps us want to sit every day, what helps us want to really investigate in our life, is to consciously, this might sound obvious, but I think it's important, is that we consciously have the motivation, the intention to do so. That it has to be really important to us. Not just intellectually, but cellularly. The kind of important that if you have children, your children are important. You don't have to stop and think, what's more important? My kids, or this movie I want to go see, or maybe, you know, I want to go out for brunch. Which is more important? I don't know. You know, it, you know it. It's there. It's in your cells, you know. That's the kind of mm, commitment of knowing that our spiritual awakening, that understanding and freeing ourselves from suffering, that living a life of compassion, of understanding how things are, whichever phraseology resonates with your motivation. Like we have to, to really know that and get it. You know, That's what's going to keep us, for example, sitting in the morning when we're tired. That's what's going to give us the confidence and the energy to bring our attention into our experience when we're feeling really scared or we're feeling really blamed or we're feeling really afraid or angry or whatever, embarrassed, self-conscious, any of the things that we're not comfortable feeling. Underneath, there has to be the intention to care enough to want to be present, to want to come home to our true self. So I want to just talk then about two ways that can be helpful to just help keeping in touch, to keep strengthening, to keep refreshing, reawakening, enlivening your motivation, your commitment. And you'll find other ones for yourself. But really to look from this level, the underneath motivation, and it comes back up rather than from up above. The first one is kind of, it's pretty much what I've just said, getting in touch with what you could call the overarching purpose or motivation in your life. There may be more than one, but what really, in your heart of hearts, in your guts, in your cells, what is truly important to you? You know, and I'm not here to say what that should be. There's not a should, but to really take some time Reflect on it. Wise reflection is I can use the thought process to see what's important. Um, for me, it's often been a process of just sitting quietly with Vipassana, just feeling it over some days or over some weeks. I just hold that question in the back of my mind and let it go and just be with myself, and sometimes things will come up. And when whatever is really important to you comes up, not to either denigrate it or say it's not good enough or it should be more spiritual or whatever. Just let it be what it is. Let it resonate around in, in you for a while and see if it's really true. So I guess I'm talking on this level, you know, more about what's really spiritually important, you know, since that's what we have in common here. But you might look and find out actually that's not so important. What's really important is being as comfortable as possible. Now I'm not trying to be so that that that's that's pretty high on my level of things that are important. But when I really look, it's not the most important. But but what is interesting is that if I don't really look, something like being as comfortable as possible actually assumes the primary importance. And so without a sense of reference to what truly matters, what you truly, not just intellectually think you want your life to be about, but what really it is about, 
So, for example, for me, when I first ever did this, it came up sort of out of nowhere. I want to serve the Dharma. And then the mind came in, oh, you stupid, what do you think you could ever do? That's the most, you know, egocentric. Don't listen to all that, because that's just the habits again. It's not about knowing how you're going to achieve this purpose. It's not even about achieving. It's more about resonating with what's really alive and powerful for you. And then it's useful, because it's useful to make it conscious, to really uh, honor it, whatever it is to value it in yourself, not get into those denigrating thoughts, or it's impossible, I could never do that. You don't know what it means. You don't know where it's going to go. You don't need to. But then in times of choice, either big choices in our life or smaller choices, that can be a reference point, you know, kind of a beacon, a sense of, oh, yeah, what's really important. So to use my example of wanting to be comfortable, if I didn't sometimes, if I wasn't paying attention if I don't sometimes consciously bring up, well, is that really, you know, the deepest thing in my life? A lot of my decisions, I mean, even more than already are, would be inclining towards what makes me comfortable. You know, that would be almost the most important thing in my life. It's easy to fall into things like that. But when, really, when I'm faced with a choice that's a difficult choice, and I can't make up my mind, and I'm, I'm in my mind, you know, these are the pros, these are the cons, you write out all the things. That's really, I'm, I'm disconnected when I'm doing that, but it's a little bit helpful. And then I sit and I go, wait a minute, what's really going on? I'll say, oh, I really think if I pick the right thing, I'll be really happy and comfortable and at ease, and that there's one way that's going to give me that. And then I know, forget about it. <laughs> that's the wrong way to make the decision. And then it's sort of like the obvious thing can come up. So it's a different process for each of us, but maybe you get a sense what I mean to begin to connect with this motivation, this purpose, and then do it consciously from time to time. Really feel it and honor it. It will, you know, uh, help you make decisions. It doesn't make it magic or easy. It's just another little help in making decisions. Uh, It'll help... um, not to just mindlessly fall back into our old habits. And it'll help with our motivation to keep doing whatever particular activities help us to keep awake in our daily life. So whether it's sitting every day or going to sitting groups or you know listening to talks or whatever it is that motivates you. Getting in touch with your deepest purpose again and again gives us the juice to make the choice in little activities too of what's really useful. And it's really looking at what what is our life really about. I got quite... It's funny, but this inspired me. I mean, it's funny, strange, and it's not what you'd call an inspiring experience, but it really touched me on this level to make me look yet again. Because your purpose can keep changing, keep renewing itself, keep shifting. And a couple of years ago, we went to visit um, in Yucca Valley, Every year, I teach in Southern California, and I usually once go to visit Ruth Dennison, who probably a lot of you know, and she's an old teacher of mine. She has a, a center about a half an hour away. And I, I think it was two or three years ago, I went with uh, Jack and Guy Armstrong, I think, and we went to visit her. She's taking care of her husband, Henry, who has Alzheimer's, very severe at that time. He's, he's pretty sick right now. And she had, you know, sold her house in Hollywood and fixed up a house out in her desert enclave and was taking care of him, along with running the retreat center, traveling around the world, teaching retreats, taking care of um, six little dogs and various. I mean, she's like amazing bundle of energy. But anyway, so we went to visit her and she had us come in and have tea with her and Henry and he was who was there now. It's interesting to me, what, what was interesting in terms of this sense of really looking more carefully at what, what do I think I'm doing with my life? What am I trying to hold on to? Because here's a man who, I didn't really know him well, but he had apparently a fascinating life. You know, Long years of practice, he and, and Ruth were in, in Burma practicing, I think in the late 50s, early 60s, in Japan practicing, hanging out with Alan Watts and that whole group, um, entertaining. He was in the Ramakrishna order for a while. I mean, really 
intellectually fascinating life, a deeply spiritual life, all kinds of experiences, all kinds of practice, all kinds of stories. And what's left? What are we left with at the end of our life? I mean, we can't even try to have experiences, store up experiences for what? What good are they when we can't even remember them? What, we can't even remember our own stories. What's left? You know, and then it's like, what, is there any point in my trying to achieve or hang on to for achievement's sake? There's plenty of point in doing things when you do it for the motivation, you know, just out of compassion, out of love, out of it's just the obvious thing to do. You do it for the moment, for the motivation. But doing something to have or achieve or be known or think better of myself or, you know, whatever. It's like, leveled, gone, you know. What if I don't even remember who I am? What's left? And you can see to some extent, if there's not like a lot of uh, really of physical brain damage, what's left is our habits, you know, how we respond in the moment. We came in, and I know he's got different habits, but we came in. He didn't have a clue. He sort of had a vague sense that Jack was somebody he knew. I mean, me and Guy didn't have a clue. But very courtly, very gentlemanly, very polite, you know, sit down. It was like, you could tell it was just a habit. And then the mind would wander off, and it wasn't there anymore. And I know there's other habits, you know, too, not always such wholesome ones. But it really caused me, gave me pause to think, all that really... I feel I can cultivate most deeply is how I meet this moment. That's the habits of mind that are being formed. You know, how can I awaken in this moment with compassion, with kindness, with clear seeing? And this is just personal. I'm not saying this is what anyone else should draw out of this. I'm saying this is the effect it had on me. That it was very much, what is life about? except cultivating awakening, cultivating compassion, and only in this moment. First, because there is only this moment. It's the only place to do it. But that's what we're left with, our habits. What the mind inclined, what the mind dwells upon frequently, towards that it will naturally incline. In fact, even karma, you know, the whole cause and effect, the round of birth and death, karma just means action. And action is, the seed of action in Buddhist psychology is all in the intention. The motivation with which we think, speak, and act, and that's only here, only now. So it really comes down to that's what we're left with. You know the saying from uh, Chogyam Trungpa, when someone was asking about rebirth and karma, and he says, "If if there's no person, what's reborn? And he said, your bad habits. So, the less bad habits we have left when we go out, the better off we are in that frame of looking at things. So, so sati is about remembering. Just remembering, not all our stories, but remembering to, can I bring presence? Can I bring acceptance and awakeness into this moment? And holding lightly to this larger sense of purpose, to me, even though it's just momentary, it's actually a larger sense of purpose because it permeates everything for me. That's very helpful to give us the courage to keep going because sometimes it's really hard. And you never know where it's going to take us. You know, I was reading um, some of that book of interview with Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, the leader of the democracy movement in Burma, you know who she is, right? Under house arrest for all these years and all. And she was saying at one point, you know, just saying you know, it was never her intention or her idea to go be the leader of the democracy movement in Burma and to be such a famous person. She said, you know, you know it just all kind of happened. And she said, I'm just a very simple person. I'm so simple, people probably can't believe it because I'm so simple. And this is sort of, I mean, I pull this as one thing she said, but it's sort of, to me, like an enunciation of her simplicity of purpose, and you never know where it's going to take you. She said, I have, ev- I have very ordinary attitudes towards life. If I think there's something I should do in the name of justice or in the name of love, then I'll do it. The motivation is its own reward. 
I just love that. She didn't say, in the name of justice, I'm going to go to Burma, I'm going to take over. I mean, it just decision after decision, out of justice or love, out of simplicity. And, you know, she finds herself in this whole scene she's in. We don't know. That's not in our control. We can't really, you know, we, I mean, I do have friends. It amazes me. They decide what they're going to do for the next five years, and by and large, they do it. That amazes me. I think that's actually very, it's a good quality of mind. I don't have it. It amazes me. But in the long run, we really don't know. We take our purpose. We, we try to live from as deep to what is true as we can. But if we have it too much set on where it should be going, we're out of touch with how we meet the moment. So for me, one thing that's, that's sort of changed, I've noticed, in, over the years, in maybe the subtext of purpose or my understanding of daily practice, is that uh, somehow there was some sense of that, that spiritual awakening is really sort of about getting myself a bit out of the grit and the hullabaloo and the craziness of everyday life. I mean, physically, almost physically removing, you know, as if I wanted to live like about a foot away from everything that was happening because it's just too intense. Never go into Walmarts again or whatever. Which, I mean, there might be a little aversion in that. I wouldn't (laughs) say no. But really, the idea that spiritual awakening is some kind of Shangri-La somewhere else. And for me personally, and this is how my trips had to go on, yours, yours might be different, It's becoming more and more about recognizing it's all right here. Awakening in the middle of everything that's going on. It's got nothing to do with the outer circumstances. This is really what Ajahn was saying today, you know. The outer circumstances have nothing to do with the space of emptiness and the expression of compassion. I actually loved it. You said, you know, when he said it's been six years he's been in this emptiness and he really doesn't make any difference to him. If he's in the city or he's here talking to yogis or he's back in the monastery or whatever. And I really understand that not as an indifference, you know, not as a shutting off. I don't care because I'm so in my own little world. But as uh, an awakening in the midst of everything so that things aren't in our way, but we, we don't have to get rid of them. We can be really awake and in touch with the truth no matter what's going on. Okay, we're not there yet, but we can have moments of it. And for me, that's really shifted from, you know, floating up somewhere and then I'd be awakened to awakening in this life, to fully inhabit each moment of life. Or never mind each moment, just this moment. To live this moment with wholehearted presence of heart, of mind, and freedoms in the middle of it all, in the midst of life. Each moment, any moment, offers us the doorway. Some moments are a lot easier than others. (laughs) To me, you know, to go through the doorway, no blame. Of course they are. That's why we come on retreat. It makes the moments a lot easier. It's a lot easier to do this here, isn't it, than in the middle of a traffic jam on the Bay Bridge. It's a lot easier to do it than when you're in the middle of a major fight with your partner. So that's okay. We use the easier moments, you know, so that we can then begin to access it in the more difficult moments. And it is difficult. Our lives are so complex. We get so busy, is how he was reading about last night. We go so quickly from one thing to the next to the next and fill up our attention and fill up our energy so that actually, you see, remembering just to be present actually is often the most difficult thing. If you remember, well, how long does it take to feel your breath? How long does it take, even in the middle of a really tense board meeting, to feel your body? It doesn't take any time. It takes almost minimal effort. It just takes that moment of, oh yeah, presence. That's what's tricky. And there it takes, it takes a really a courage because so often the presence is unpleasant or scary or difficult. And it takes great motivation to keep 
trying to do it. So one other, well, a group of things that can also, for some people, be very helpful as a way to keep helping us remember to remotivate is uh, some traditional contemplations from the Tibetan tradition called the Four Mind Turnings. Now, by contemplation, I mean really using wise reflection. This is a place where we appreciate and use the process of thinking. See, we never said to hate thinking. Thinking can be really useful. So the four uh, mind turnings are just four conscious reflections that you begin by thinking about, you know, and then move more deeply into them. And they're nothing you haven't heard before. But they're ways to, when you're, when you're really feeling like, what do I want to do this for? Why did I go to that retreat? Why do I want to pay attention? I, I really need to remember why it matters to pay attention. Have you ever had moments like that? Yeah, it happens on retreat a lot. Why am I lifting this foot? <laughs> Tell it, remind me again, what's the point of this? <laughs> the breath, okay, already. Just, you know, we really lose it, never mind in life when there's so much else. Why should I sit down when I'm so busy? So the four traditional contemplations, the mind turnings, they help us turn our heart towards the Dharma. Very stuff you know, but to consciously think about it. The first one is the, our fortunate birth, the preciousness of our human life. And to put it in very um, common terms, not to put it into Buddhist of a background, to appreciate all the factors that we have in our life, and everyone here has to some extent, that allows us to meet the Dharma in this life. There's so many people on this planet who don't have the physical time, who don't have the um, health to even pay attention at all, who don't have the opportunity, the availability to hear, and it doesn't have to be even Buddha Dharma, you know, but just some spiritual practice, who have to work so hard all their life just to support their family, just to get enough food to eat who are in the middle of wars, who are in places where they're not allowed freedom to do such things. There's so many places on this planet, in this country, where life is just about barely surviving, never mind really having what seems like a luxury to sit down and really explore the nature of the mind and heart. Technically, sure. Technically, it's possible no matter what you're doing. But if you don't have the teaching or some way to really access it and you're so overwhelmed in your life, it's pretty impossible. And just, it's easy, it's so easy for me to forget, to get used to how fortunate I am, how fortunate the people I meet are. Because we all have our stories of difficulty and suffering and poor health and, I mean, really serious suffering. I'm not saying this means our life's easy. But the suffering is actually part of what is considered the preciousness of our human birth. Seriously. Because it's said in the, in the God realms, in the Deva realms, it's so much sensual pleasure that there's not much motivation for investigation. It's just too nice. So aren't you lucky <laughs> that it's not so nice? And actually, we are. And even that we're interested, because there's many people who have plenty of opportunity and luxury and leisure and all, and just really aren't that interested. Think of your families, if you've been trying to drag them, you know? (laughs) Yeah, thanks a lot. That's really nice. You go. Even when I was in Thailand as a nun, um, people were wonderful to me. As uh, Mark, the translator, was explaining today, a lot of the practice of of just kind of basic everyday Buddhism in Thailand is of, of dana, of generosity, and it's beautiful, incredibly generous, supporting the monasteries, the monks, the nuns. But when I went there in a, to meditate for a year, people would come up to me and say, really, so happy and whole Oh, it's so great you're here. You meditate for me. I can't do it. And, then, and it wasn't that they didn't have time or anything, but they just thought they couldn't do it, weren't interested in doing it, and were quite happy being generous and making merit. But I can't do that. You go do it. Just really not that same interest. 
in investigation, you know. So to take some time to reflect when you're really getting lost in a negative whinge about how bad life is and it's impossible to practice because of X, Y, and Z, just stop a minute and reflect on your own particular fortunate circumstances that allow investigation, that allow development of compassion and love and clear seeing, and that you care enough to even try and do it. And then, of course, the suffering aspect, which is never left out for very long of any Buddhist list of contemplations. (laughs) But it does start with appreciation. I want to point that out. The next two, and I'll kind of mix them together just for purposes of time, is reflection on the ever-presence of impermanence and death, which Howie talked about a little, which, if you really reflect on it, not as a panic attack, but as a motivator, it works. It's not like, well, okay, next year, which is so easy, next year I'm really going to put in some good practice time. I can't really deal with being awake in this particular situation because right now it's just too intense. I'll wait till it cools off a little bit and then I'll pay attention, you know, that kind of thing. We never know. We never know. Our ability of denial is great. I thought of this little article last night when Howie was reading one of his, the one about the, the uh, human growth hormone. So this is uh, from a newspaper about a small town in Spain. The mayor of this city has banned death. <laughs> he feels the local cemetery is too crowded for a soul to get decent rest. So the 4,000 residents of this village in Granada province have to remain alive while municipal officials shop for land for a new graveyard. <laughs> the mayor, Jose Rubio, issued an edict that said that people should take utmost care of their health <laughs> so they do not die until town hall takes the necessary steps <laughs> to acquire land suitable for our deceased to rest in glory. Now, there's a certain level (laughs) of disconnect going on, I would say. (laughs) The ever-presence of impermanence and death. And the third one, um, which is to really use the suffering, the frustration that comes with, basically, our life, day-to-day life in samsara, the, the unreliability of experience, the unholdability, the fact of, of change and the, uh, as I said, the difficulties that come in this human birth are not seen as impediments, but that actually reflection on the, the ever presence of impermanence and death and being willing to meet our difficult circumstances as avenues for understanding, as motivators to pay attention, are actually very deep um, contemplations. And they work. I'm going to talk to a couple of people where it came out as we were talking and when they weren't practicing so much daily anymore. I said, well, actually, things have been going pretty good, you know. And one guy even said to me, you know, I'll probably have to start really suffering before I get back into a daily practice. And we do this, don't we? So it's easier if you just contemplate on it. And that motivates you rather than waiting till it gets really bad. But it's, it's, it's pretty common. And I'm sure you've heard of the whole work that John Kabat-Zinn and the people in Worcester are doing with mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, basically, it's a program where people are uh, referred by doctors who, that, that the medical community can't really do anything else for them. And it might be that they have terminal diagnoses, really sick, or it might be just a lot of pain or migraines, or but, but really where they're in a lot of... Uh, pain and suffering presently, and they might be having a terminal diagnosis. And, of course, mostly they come to this program thinking they're going to find some cure. And it takes a few weeks because all that they're teaching them is just straight mindfulness meditation, you know. And I can talk about what it's like. It's really quite amazing. Some years ago, when I was managing the meditation center in Barry, IMS, a long time ago, several of us, went to become interns in this program. They allow a few people in each class who aren't um, 
referred by doctors, to sit in and participate and really learn and see how this teaching mindfulness works with this strong pain and disease. So I went with two good friends. We were all working at the meditation center, and it was an extremely busy time. We were majorly stressed out. So you'd think it would be a good time for us to go to stress reduction, but we'd hop in the car in the morning, drive like an hour really fast, get to this program, stuffing down some breakfast in the cafeteria as we ran in. And then they'd start teaching mindfulness by having us lie down on the floor and do a body scan. We would, one or the other of us would invariably fall asleep. We never really made it through. You know, we were like, after two weeks, three weeks, people were saying, I've had four migraines a week and I'm not having them anymore. We, in the meantime, the three of us, we would have to leave at two in the afternoon whenever it was over, drive like mad through this kind of really bad lunch hour traffic because we had our weekly staff meeting, which was never the most enjoyable experience. We'd come to our staff meeting completely fried. You know, our heads would be splitting. We're lying and I can't take this meeting. I can't. I'm really stressed out from my day. Somehow, we were the meditators, you know, but because we already knew how to do it, And we weren't really, we didn't have the motivation. We went to learn something, but we we weren't, you know, at our wit's end. We weren't facing a terminal diagnosis. And it's funny when I think back on it. It was kind of pathetic. And they would just, to see the effect on not everybody in the class. You know, there's one or two people that don't, don't really click. Of course, that's fine. But there's really some huge effects on people in the class. And really, as you know, it wasn't that it was some magic cure. It's just shifting the relationship, being able to actually be with the actual experience instead of hating it and fearing it and blaming whatever happened and reliving all the past. Oh, yeah, how to be with pain just as it is without adding the extra. Really amazing results. And we just got stressed out. But when I think about it later, I thought, you know, that's a perfect example of how the imminence of death, the constancy of impermanence, the suffering we are faced with in our lives can really serve as a motivator to wake up. And why should we think we can wait until we really do have a terminal diagnosis? We don't even, that's even a luxury to, to know you have time. We don't know. We all have suffering. Instead of just vetching about it, we could really say, okay, this is the moment to wake up. How am I meeting this difficult circumstance? Can I, just for a fraction of a second, awaken with clarity, meet it with compassion? No, it isn't easy. It takes enormous motivation. A little reflection can sometimes help to re-inspire the motivation. And the last reflection, which I'll just say a little about. I don't want to get into the whole discussion because the last reflection is on karma. Karma, which means basically, the word karma just means action, cause and effect, the whole chain of cause and effect, the inevitability of karma. Action in the way the Buddha looked at it, really the seed of action is in the intention, the motivation of why we do a particular action, speech, thought, but really we can look at our actions in our life, you know? Am I, even if it comes out looking like a great action, but what motivated us is, is, you know, total pettiness, that's the seed of karma. That's the effect that will at some point bloom. Now where karma gets very complicated, and I don't want to go into it tonight, is it's not so linear, you know? And that's why it's very confusing. You see people having all these good things and you know they're really rotten to the core and they're having all this good stuff and you go, I don't get this karma. But if we don't worry about other people and we pay attention to ourselves, which is really where the healing is and the freedom is, none of us are going to get too free by analyzing other people's intentions and what's happening to them. But to bring attention back and pay attention to why we're doing what we're doing, what happens and this is where I'm skipping all the little details, but what happens and what you can begin to notice is that when we can meet, oh, awaken in the moment with clarity, 
Just meet what's happening, why we're doing what we're doing, and pay attention to what happens after we do something out of anger or after we do something out of love or after we do something out of just total obliviousness, after we do something out of compassion. We keep paying attention. The feedback we get, our own internal feedback, our experience, is that really we're so much happier when we act from our interconnectedness, when we act from compassion, or friendliness, when we act from seeing clearly rather than all our preconceptions. Thinking about this is useful. Paying attention is where we really learn it. So what begins to happen, it's already happening for all of us, you see it often on retreat, is that um, our habits of mind, this here in intention, is where you can notice habits starting to shift. Not overnight, but we do notice it, where Acting from greed isn't, isn't so satisfying. In little things, you start to notice, oh, I got that fifth chocolate chip cookie. Didn't really do it. <laughs> <laughs> and whereas, first of all, I guess I need a sixth. Then you can say, oh, maybe it's because it's never going to do it. You can put it down. I mean, I'm making it small, but it really begins to shift. And... I don't know if you got it when Ajahn Jimnin was talking about um, how his emptiness is even bigger this year. And so even when he had the, uh, what was it, chicken pox, he kept just doing for people, doing for people, that actually that compassionate action is what made the emptiness seem to get bigger, is what actually gave him strength. In his way of talking, I loved it, because what I got was the sense of the emptiness, the wisdom, and the compassion as natural interplays together, you know, the two wings of our practice of wisdom and compassion. They can't be separated. When we're seeing clearly, our natural response in a situation is going to be more from our interrelatedness and less from our sense of small separate me that has to be totally protected and everything else kept at bay and manipulated so that somehow I can be happy if I can control everything. Just... Not even, oh, I'm so, as he was saying, you know, not this idea of being so compassionate, not that we have to be the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa, but it becomes what one teacher called doing the obvious. You don't even think about it. But in a situation, rather than always self-referencing, we just respond by doing what's obvious. And often what's obvious is going to be the response of caring, of friendliness, of compassion. And we start, as I said, not by some grandiose idea or service project, but by starting where we are. How do I meet this moment? Starting with ourselves from Pema Chodron. When you wake up in the morning and out of nowhere comes the heartache of alienation and loneliness, could you use that as a golden opportunity? Rather than persecuting yourself or feeling that something terribly wrong is happening, right there in the moment of sadness and longing, could you relax and touch the limitless space of the human heart? Next time you get a chance, experiment with this. Start where we are. You don't have to have some big thing going on. You just wake up feeling crappy. You know, we all get to do that. That's a great place to cultivate compassion and clarity. No one can say they don't have an opportunity. And so the moments of our lives, that's plenty to start with. When you're caught in traffic, when the baby's crying and you're changing the diaper, when you're having a horrible time with your landlord, when you've been working in real estate for six months and never made any money, no matter what it is that's happening, right here, it can be mundane. Mundane's fine. Mundane's great. It's easy with mundane. Practice with the mundane so that the really big, difficult ones, we have a sense that we can trust, that if I'm really willing to meet it wholeheartedly, Doing the obvious, meeting it with compassion, responding appropriately will be more natural. We don't have to figure it out all the time. And so it's, it's not just self-serving either, you know, just meeting our own circumstances and somehow it doesn't affect 
You know, how we meet ourselves, how we meet each experience, it really seeps out into our relationships with everybody. And really what happens is, over time, what makes us happy really changes. Generosity makes us happy. We don't have to think about it. Kindness, friendliness, open-heartedness makes us happy. And when I get snippety, when I get impatient, when I get aversive, it's more noticeable because it's really so obviously suffering. And the suffering is really in the sense of separation. I think in some ways the deepest suffering is our sense of separation. Separation from others really deeply our sense of separation from our our true home. We're not really separated, but because we're so caught in reactivity, we don't notice that we're not separated. So just the expression of kindness becomes our real deepest happiness. I want to just read this article because I've liked it and I never have a chance to read it. So I'm reading it. It fits in. That's where it fits in. <laughs> it's an article about a man named Matt Dawson um, who's worked uh, for the Ford, for Ford Company, for 59 years in Detroit. And uh, he could have retired a long time ago. He's 78 years old. But he's still at it, driving a forklift, working as much overtime as possible, uh, makes about $100,000 a year, And he keeps doing it just so he can give it most of it away. He has given away, um, he first gave away $50,000 to the United Negro College Fund in 1994. Since then, he's given them $180,000 more. Then he gave $200,000 to Louisiana State University, $112,000 to churches in Detroit and Louisiana, $20,000 to the NAACP, and 10000 to community colleges. And he just gave $200,000 to Wayne State University. He works. He says, he says, I get joy and happiness out of this. I can go home and sleep good. And he just lives in a little apartment, drives a 1985 Ford Escort, and works constantly, doesn't take vacations, because it makes him really happy to give this money away. Isn't that nice? Real happiness, that's real happiness. Not just, you know, saving it all so you can maybe make $100 on the stock market if the NASDAQ goes up and you sell at the right time. I mean, that's not happiness. I've just been watching my friends. I cannot say that that's happiness. You know? That is. And that comes to be happy for us. Shanti Deva, who's a great Indian teacher, said, when I've done something for others, No amazement or conceit arises. It's like having fed myself. I hope for nothing in return. It's like having fed myself. That sense of separation, that sense of isolation isn't there. We're really happy. We're really happy. And to come back to this practice, which can seem so isolating, sitting here, being with what's happening, being in silence, removing ourselves from the world to do a retreat. But really, it's, as, as I know you know, it's about opening to the whole world. I just want to close with this from Pema Children. Fundamentally, when we look into our own hearts and begin to discover what is confused and what is brilliant, what is bitter and what is sweet. It is not just ourselves that we're discovering. We're discovering the universe. When we discover the Buddha that we are, we realize that everything and everyone is Buddha. When we regard thoughts and emotions with humor and openness, that's how we perceive the universe. We're not just talking about our individual liberation, but how to help the community we live in how to help our families, our country, the whole continent, not to mention the world and the galaxy and as far as we want to go. There's an interesting transition that occurs naturally and spontaneously. We begin to find that to the degree that there is bravery in ourselves, the willingness to look, 
to point directly at our own hearts and to the degree that there is kindness towards ourselves. There is confidence that we can actually forget ourselves and open to the world. So that's our practice. Here, in daily life, no difference. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. So there's a half an hour for Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.